I'm a sort of of the Orwell school, you know, to hope to make the writing not in itself the, the, the point, you know, to have it be like a pane of glass. You know, should it be, the writing itself should be interesting, but it doesn't have to be flashy. I think, I don't know, I believe in immersion in the, in the story that I've, that I've discovered. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Author Tracy Kidder has been described as, quote, a master of narrative nonfiction. Kidder won the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award for his 1981 book, The Soul of a New Machine, about the development of cutting-edge computers. He's the author of more than a dozen books, including the widely acclaimed 2003 New York Times bestseller, Mountains Beyond Mountains, about the global health pioneer Dr. Paul Farmer. The Washington Post says that Kidder writes about, quote, the moral value of small victories in a world of big problems. Homelessness is one of the most intractable problems, haunting cities and rural areas alike. It's the focus of Kidder's latest book, Rough Sleepers, Dr. Jim O'Connell's Urgent Mission to Bring Healing to Homeless People, about a Boston physician who specializes in working with the unhoused community. Kidder spent five years following Dr. O'Connell as he worked the streets of Boston. I began by asking Tracy Kidder why he decided to focus on this topic. As you describe um, so accurately, you know, it, this is the world of homelessness is a world that, as you say, is hidden in plain sight and one that uh, we step over around and av- sort of avert our eyes but you chose to step into it. So tell me about that decision. I was out researching another, doing research on another book. And the, the, my, the character there, the principal character, or as my late editor Dick Todd used to say, my victim at that time was uh, an entrepreneur named Paul English, founder of kayak.com. And he had, he had a real interest in homelessness in, in his native city in Boston. And he wanted uh, to learn more. So he, he asked around and everyone said, everyone in Boston said, you got to go see Jim O'Connell. And so he was invited out on the outreach van. There are actually two of them that go out every night from the Pine Street Inn, which is New England's largest homeless shelter, or was before the, by, before the pandemic. Anyway, I'm getting too particular here. Two of these vans go out every night, every night of the year. They're basically looking for rough sleepers. The, the, that is those homeless people who shun the shelters, and sleep outside or in makeshift quarters. Like this doctor I followed had one patient who had rented a storage locker and he slept in that, if you can imagine, in the winter. Uh, you know, and there are various other places, ATM parlors and so on. Um, I, I, went, I tagged along and it was really interesting. I was struck right away by, uh, by the that world out there, the world that I hadn't seen, particularly the nighttime world. I mean, uh, I'll get back to that anyway. But uh, I, Jim, the doctor, Jim O'Connell, what, what struck me first was the relations between this Harvard-educated Dr. Jim and and his patients. You know, some of them were arguing with statues, drunkenly arguing. Some were, just, you know, most of them were just having a good time with each other, drinking, talking. Um, some were very sad and lonely. And with all of them, though, uh, there, there were these inc- incredibly warm relations. They, and they all brightened up when they saw him. Some of them almost seemed to come back to life. And, uh, you know, and that interested me. 
I mean, the whole world out there interested me, but but it was really these the, the warmth of these relationships, the the, the contrast of the harshness of, uh, of of the circumstances, and uh, you know the the unfamiliarity of all this. It all just sort of made me think I might like to write about this guy. And some months later, I I asked for another ride on the van, and he took me out, and and it was just he he, he and I. And it was even more interesting to me. And it, I think the first, the, the way I begin my book is with a scene where we come into a, a gentrifying neighborhood in South Boston. I say the, the kind of neighborhood that is said to be in transition. And on one side of the street, you got a fancy new condo to apartment building. And on the other side, you get an old loading dock. And on the loading dock are some blankets. The van pulls up next to the blankets. This driver goes up to the blankets and speaks to them, you know, and a voice comes back and very rudely it tells the driver to go away. And then Dr. O'Connell uh, says to the, the the driver, let me try, and goes up the steps to the loading dock, kneels down by the blankets and says, hey, Billy, or whatever it was, Jimmy, Joey, I can't remember. Um it's Jim O'Connell. I just want to make sure you're all right. And this is an explosion of the blankets and his face comes out. Dr. Jim, how the hell are you? And uh, long conversation. And I just, something about that moment really struck me. I mean, there, there were so many things tied up in it. And, the, and it's that metaphorical sense of, maybe that's not the right word, but of bringing people out from under blankets. It was... Uh, and, and, and for me, too, you know, I, these were people I had rarely uh, spoken to or even paid much attention to. And I always congratulated myself when I had in the past. And after that, I, you know, uh, I thought a lot about it and poked around. And I guess Jim did his own uh, research. He talked to his old friend, Paul Farmer, I think, and uh, and to the guy, this Paul English. And um and then he also talked to his board, I guess. I didn't know any of this until, I didn't know it until fairly recently, but they said, okay, let him, let him come. And I just glommed onto him and to his street team. He's the founder, founding physician of a very large organization in Boston. I was started with eight personnel and now has about four to 500 uh, called Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program. He calls it the program. It is uh, an astonishing thing. Um, uh, you know, with, they have clinics in 30 shelters in the city, uh, basically all the shelters in the city. They've got uh, special teams, you know, for transgender homeless people, probably the most endangered in the city. And and for, <clears throat> they have a, and, oh, and they have this amazing respite hospital called McGinnis House, named for the nurse who first taught Jim how to do this work. And uh, uh, 304 beds, it's, it's a marvelous thing, a really marvelous thing, and no other... There's no other place in the country that has anything really comparable. Washington D.C. has has a pretty good one, but no no place else. And and then it has a street team. The street, as it happens, the rough sleepers of Boston are probably the smallest segment of the homeless population, but they are by far the most endangered. Rough sleepers in Boston. If if I'm not boring you, no. I mean, it, I mean, this is you kind of are not deterred by the the kind of the first tier of homelessness, which is life in shelters and things like that. And you go to really the 
as you say, most endangered, but um, also the most marginalized population, which are those people sleeping out in the streets, which in Boston can be a pretty life-threatening thing. In itself, yes. Uh, I should say that, you know, in in, in many other parts of the country, rough sleepers are, if not the majority, a very large minority, Uh, partly because of climate, partly because in some cities, particularly in the South, most shelters are faith-based and they don't let people come in who are drunk. And they do in Boston, by and large. They just to go on for a second though. I mean, they, they rough sleepers died at a rate of a somewhere between ten and 15, 14 times. I think that of their counterparts in the regular population. That's a appalling death rate. Just appalling. They are hardy survivors. They're quite remarkable. There's a lot to say about them. But I, by way of explaining why, but to them, I was interested. I almost never have taken taken on a book or. But uh, because I was interested in the subject to start with, I usually found a person and often just bumped into a person as I did with Jim, as I did with say Paul Farmer and others. And then of course, once I got interested in the life of that person, I got interested in the the subjects that, that preoccupied them. And in this case, it's homelessness. But Jim by this time was, in, was pushing 70, time I first met him in 2014, I was pushing 70. And he and he was still president of the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program, but he was he had he had pulled back from a lot of other things. He still was the captain of the street team, and for, I think for a long, long time, their their plight was one that had interested him most. Uh, so I just sort of fell into it. I don't. I I have no. I'm I'm glad I did actually. I'm not. You spent five I years chronicling. Um, Jim O'Connell's work among these so-called rough sleepers. Do you get to a point where do you risk being overwhelmed by material? Yeah, is there such thing as too much information, I guess? Oh yeah. But but when I say five years, it's I met him in 2014. I, I actually was still doing research in, in 2020, maybe a little beyond, but it was two year, two of those years were really intense. And then there were there was a lot of stuff around the edges and all those other years. So I just say five years sounds good, uh, but I, I I have an awful lot of material. Yes, I assembled a huge amount of material, and I always have, with the possible exception of Paul Farmer, whose life was whom I didn't follow as I couldn't wouldn't have allowed it followed him from day to day for long periods of time. I did it for short intense periods of a couple of weeks here and once a month and or for an entire month and things like that. But with uh, Jim, I was just constantly there. Being overwhelmed by the material is just a problem you deal with as you begin to figure out what you're doing and you become very familiar with your notes and your recordings and so on. Uh, Knowing when, and, and the big advantage of being there a lot is that people get used to your being there. And you can begin to assume, to some degree anyway, that they're behaving pretty much the way they would if you weren't there, which I think is important. Um, the real liability is knowing when to stop if you're enjoying your research. I, and I have to say, I really did. Um, I might say something about, if you don't mind, about, about that whole business of looking away and stepping over people and so on. I, I don't want to sound self-righteous. I I did that just as as skillfully as most of us do. I think what happens, I've talked a lot about what to my about this to my wife, and I'm using her terms here, 
you know, in a city like Boston, which has almost no public bathrooms, a homeless person has a very hard time keeping himself clean or herself clean. And, and, and for that kind of reason, that's just this sheer lack of resources and sometimes lack of inner resources. I mean, lack of training uh, in indoor living and so on. Homeless people can, can seem almost alien or, or, or certainly, um, you know, uh, irredeemably um, primitive. And, but you can only sustain an idea like that if you just see them from the corners of your eyes or if maybe if you're handing a, a $5 bill to someone and passing by. If you get to know them, if you really look at them, and a lot of people never do, you realize that they're, you know, every bit as human as you and you and I. And and we also, and, and that old, the old adage of the bear, but for the grace of God, go I. I mean, it's absolutely true. In many cases, you realize that when you hear the stories that if you had, hadn't had a decent childhood, you might be here too. I mean, so many of the, uh, and some of these are certifiable. This is people making up stuff. It's horrifying childhoods uh, in many cases, horrifying abuse and trauma and so on and other issues. You know, it, it doesn't always start with substance abuse. Homelessness, sometimes it does. It often leads there. And it, it, when I try to imagine myself homeless, that it would lead me there pretty fast. Hmm. Take almost anything I could find to, to not to feel like I was there because the humiliation, the loneliness, uh, the sheer physical discomfort of, of that life, even if you're sheltered in some, in some ways, especially if you are. So I guess my, my plea generally is, what I was hoping to do by the end of this project was to give you a, a, an incarnation of this problem to make you see and meet some of these people, especially, well, the doctor especially, but some of the people who've enchanted him in, and, and saddened him and, you know, but around whom he's created quite a professional life. I, I wanted you to, I wanted to create a, this, this feeling of those people. And, and then I picked on one in particular who really fascinated Jim and who fascinated me too. Um, and, and made his story kind of the central one. But anyway, I, I, I hope I never make the same mistakes with homeless people again. These are human beings, you know, they're, and they're complicated, interesting people. They've all got this bizarre thing on top of their, you know, on, top, on, on their shoulders. They're, they're the most complicated structure in the known universe. Um, so, uh, so as you go in search of characters to tell a story. And as you say, you look first for the characters. Um, you've had some remarkable uh, people who you profiled in your books. And I suppose this is as good a time as any. You've mentioned Paul Farmer now a number of times. I was going to absolutely circle back to him, but we might as well introduce our audience to Paul Farmer. He was the subject of your 2003 book, Mountains Beyond Mountains, and quite tragically, uh, Paul Farmer passed away last year at, uh, I believe he was 63 or is it? He was 62, but I could be wrong. I... Yeah. And yeah. this was quite a shock. Um, because of... Talk about your relationship with Paul Farmer, um, how it began and, and who he was and say a little bit more about his work with Partners in Health and what that is. He was the, really the founder of Partners in Health, along with a bunch of other quite amazing people. Um, yeah, I met him in Haiti. 
I'd gone there in 1994 to write a story about American soldiers. Uh, you know, we had sent a huge expeditionary force to restore the constitutionally elected government there and, and re re you know, relieve Haiti, relieve a terror, remove a terror that had, this military junta that had been ruling the place with great cruelty. I went there and I, I ended up in, hanging around with a, uh, a special forces A team, um, eight men who were in charge of some hundreds of thousands of Haitians in theory. And uh, he showed up uh, at one evening at the, uh, the, the the army barracks, the, the concern. And it was interesting, he came and he got in a bit of an argument with the captain, the guy in charge. Well, it didn't start as an argument. I think what Paul was trying to do was warn him that that was a very complicated situation, that he was losing the, 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 the confidence of the local people. Um, but I was struck by his, his, uh, yeah, arrogance actually <laughs> at that, uh, on that, on that occasion and, and his certain, you know, his certainty, but also was really curious, who's, what's this American doctor doing out here? You know, he apparently had, uh, some kind of clinic or something out there. So I, I, you know, I met him again on the airplane going back when I went back home for Christmas that year and learned a lot more from him. And and it and it felt much more warmly toward him during that conversation, uh, and almost missed my connecting flight because I went to have some coffee with him in the Miami airport, and they came and found me. Uh, anyway, I, I just remember all this so vividly. I and then I put him. A, I had dinner with him, and I learned a lot more about Haiti. I wrote my little piece was for the New Yorker, and then I forgot about him for six years. Well, I didn't actually forget, but I moved on to something else and. And then I realized, you know, I was just trying to avoid what would what, what threatened to be kind of a disturbing stories, idiotic of me. And so six years later, I hooked up with him again, and he invited me to come to Haiti. And, uh, and I did a, did a profile of him for the New Yorker and so on. He he had founded um, this organization. He and his others, Jim Jim Young Kim and Ophelia Dahl and uh, a. a Todd, a guy named Todd McCormick and a very wealthy man named Tom White had all founded this group Partners in Health and it had started in Haiti. The basic idea was to try to redress the astonishing inequities in, in health, in health and medicine. Medicine is a subheading of a part of health uh, in, um, in the poor countries. Uh, and uh, they started in Haiti. They, they uh, during my time, they had really already expanded to uh, the the gulag of uh, of Russia, where people were dying of multi drug resistant tuberculosis, and also to Peru, uh, same thing. And you know, and since then they've been in Africa, particularly in Rwanda, um, just all over the all over the globe. And and basically, what they I mean, they haven't been solving all the problems everywhere. What they've been doing is to a large degree, offering proofs of possibility, you know, fighting against all the uh, the kind of shibboleths of public health, international public health particularly, has to be sustainable. Uh, it's not cost effective, you'd hear those terms. And those terms are all, those are both good terms, but they're used, they were usually used, as Farmer used to say, as a way to stop a conversation. Anyhow, he did a huge amount in his time. He was wonderful to travel with. He's hyper articulate, very funny. And he could also be a colossal pain in the neck. I, to be honest, I mean, he could really, 
Um, I remember, for instance, uh, being with him in, in Cuba, where he was something of a national hero, uh, and having him sitting in an airport, and he's accusing me of basically of, of harming his enterprise, harming his work by writing by writing when I hadn't written anything yet, <laughs> and and I I was I was pissed, but you know those kinds of things pass. I I I've been irritated with I was irritated with him in years late years later almost always a little bit irritated with him and I was delighted by him. Uh, you know he was a compli very complicated maybe the most complicated person I've ever known but he was also one of the most gifted and um, you know and 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 in his way self sacrificing. Um, I I don't know what else to say except you well, know. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say your relationship with your subjects is by nature complicated. You, um, yeah. your writing is characterized by its intimacy, uh, it, your intimacy with the characters, with their world, with the you know who they interact with, and I'm just curious with Paul Farmer, uh, you know how you were affected by his passing, his unexpected passing uh, last year. Well, I, I I was shocked. Uh, I was in Puerto Rico at the time, and I remember hearing my my daughter called me. My daughter's a doctor. She she had worked with them to to some degree, and uh, I, w I was so shocked. I was in a rental car place, and I yelled. <laughs> then I had to apologize to the rental car agent. I was I was shocked. I was and I was saddened. I gotta say, I wasn't entirely surprised though. He had. Uh, with the time when I had traveled with him, he hardly slept at all. His diet was appalling. Um, uh, you know, he had congenital heart trouble, it would seem. Uh, there's every reason to think so, I think. I believe I'm no expert in these things. But he didn't always take his med medicines when he should. He was one of those doctors. He was really could be really reckless about his own health. I mean, he he worked so hard that I think there were times when he was near despair, almost wanting to die. So I, you know, I I was um, I I think he died very happy though. He was in Rwanda. He had started a medical school there with you know a lot of help from his friends. I I, I always have to stop to make that point. The way I write these, I've written about him and Jim O'Connell is as though they were they did everything by themselves. I try to remind you that in the book that they didn't. But as you know, lives of lives of service require lives of support, all around. Them. Um, anyway, he had created this beautiful hospital in in, in uh, Rwanda, in northern Rwanda, a place called Butaro, one of the most beautiful facilities I've ever seen. Donated by donors to Partners in Health, the, the money for it, built locally. Uh, anyway, uh, he had he had established a medical school there. You know, a lot of a lot of the visiting faculty came from Harvard, for instance. You know, Paul was a was a what do they call him a university professor. He could do anything he wanted, basically. And uh, he just he was just with the first graduating class. He'd sent me a photo a few days before. It was an old joke between us. He here he is with a bevy of beautiful black young men and women. Here's Paul, and, and he'd shown me years and years ago from his earliest days in Haiti, sitting on a riverbank with a whole lot of Haitians 
and he would he would always say, "I'm the I'm the third person to the, from the left," you know, because he's the only white person. So it's, it was sort of stark. And I wrote back to him, I say, "Are you the person in the middle?" With <laughs> so he that I'd laugh out of him for that. And then, um, then I didn't see him again. Uh, and I, I do, I do miss him. Uh, I I miss especially the. The, the bit of comfort I used to get from knowing he was in the world along with people like O'Connell. You know, we wake up in the morning, we read the news and we think violence and chaos, they're running everything. And then, you know, it's, it's nice to know that there's some effective counterforces out there. It's not that you, one is naive enough to think that they're gonna win necessarily, but it's just nice to know they're there. Uh, Paul Farmer at, at, at the most beautiful church service I've ever been to at, at the Trinity Church in Boston, um, there's just a gorgeous service, um, and and, and uh, people like Fauci spoke. Fauci spoke and wept. It was it was really quite something. Your latest book, Rough Sleepers, I believe, is completes a trilogy of in which your subject are doctors, uh, because it begins with Paul Farmer in 2003. It continues in strength in what remains with your main character, Dea, who I, I know was trained as a doctor, but is, did not become one. No, he did not. Yeah. Did not become one, but is now building clinics. Building a huge hospital right building now. Building a hospital. Just about done. And culminates with uh, Dr. Jim O'Connell in Boston. What is it that draws you to doctors? Are, are you a frustrated, uh, like a, a wannabe medical student who suddenly <laughs> took the wrong road and ended up as a writer? Could be. Uh, can I say one thing before I try to answer that? Yeah. Paul, I just wanted to say Paul and Jim are, were friends. Paul, Paul is younger than Jim uh, O'Connell. And Jim would, once in a while, they were on a panel together. And Paul would always say, poor Jim, he never got more than a mile away from where he went to medical school. And then, <laughs> and then Jim, then he would say, but right here in Boston, in this great citadel of medicine. He deals with exactly what I deal with in Haiti and Rwanda and Peru and, you know, in Lesotho, you name it. Uh, so I, I just wanted to make that point that they're, they're, they were pretty much engaged in the same kind of medicine, only in very different settings. Uh, I'm not sure. I do think uh, my daughter's a doctor. Um, I don't think I talked her into it. There is something about it, though, that really does appeal to me. I have absolutely no, uh, I didn't do very well in math and sciences in school. Um, uh, to my regret, you know, honestly. I, but I remember about, I don't know, maybe it was 20 years ago, I was at dinner with, uh, the, the, it was the uh, dean of the medical school in um, Indianapolis. Was that uh, Butler? Yeah. And he and I said, my daughter says that I should go to medical school. And he leaned across the table and he said, "Would you like to?" And I said, "No, no." Thinking, you know, how, how could I possibly do organic chemistry? You know, it's just beyond me. But I do think it's, I think of the two professions, and I've written about it. I wrote about a teacher once too, and I, I'm really mostly interested in, in in the lives of the professional, the the working lives of people, which are we often sort of forget. You know, we're more interested in their sexual lives or their you know, uh, other things, but we have been anyway, many writers of my era. I just think the working lives are, are really fascinating. And, but the, of the two that I've looked at closely, 
uh, and there was also policemen in there, uh, and, and computer engineers. I think teaching and, and medicine are the two greatest professions if you love them. Uh, if you don't, they'll probably torment you every day. The, the, I was just thinking about Jim O'Connell, you know, people think, oh, he, he's a saint. He hates that, by the way, hates being called a saint. Uh, Paul Farmer kind of liked it, <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, not kind of, he did. He didn't like it. But I think about Jim, what, here's what he did. You know, he got conscripted into this job. He, he was going to go and be a, an oncologist. He was getting a, about to go to a fellowship at Sloan Kettering when he got conscripted into helping to build, to begin to build a, a system of uh, medicine for homeless people in Boston. And it was all part of a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation grant that was going to all these cities. And Boston needed a doctor and they couldn't find one. And his 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 seniors at, at uh, Mass General where he did his residency, his, his the, the, the great senior doctors called him in and asked him to do it for a year and he couldn't refuse. But he you know, wasn't ha all that happy about it. Anyway, he found himself doing it putting off the fellowship one year and then finally just saying, I, I can't leave. Um, uh, there's a, that's a long story. I, I did a, a whole long, it was a cover story in the New York, New York Times Magazine back in January telling that story. Anyway. It, I, uh, I saw it and I also took note that it was illustrated by a, a young photographer from the town where I live, Waterbury, Vermont, oh, yeah. Cole Barish. Um, who really did some exquisite photography of Absolutely. Boston's unhoused people and its rough sleepers. Well, um, the street team loved that guy. Okay. But, but just to finish this, this, what I have to say about this is that, so this is supposed to be saintly work. And, and it's true that at first he was getting paid something like $5 an hour, Jim was, but he's well paid now. Think about it this you you go to you go to you discover he was at 30 by the time he discovered this that you really want to be a doctor and never mind how he figured that out you go to school to med school and you do really well and you work really hard and you really enjoy it you know you're finally doing something you go off and you you become a resident and you work your tail off there too you know at one of the girls greatest hospitals they come out of there i mean you've really learned to be a, a you're, you really feel good about your doctoring skills and then jim is one of the most modest humility you know, humble men and genuinely so on, on earth. Um, but he felt always really sure about himself as a doctor. And then you find yourself first, at first reluctantly, trying to bring medicine, use your skills for the people who in, the, in your city who need it more than anybody else. You know, but when he first started working in Boston, it was like disaster medicine, people who hadn't been seen a doctor in years. And if they had seen one, never saw the same one twice. I mean, teeth horrifying stuff that you'd only see in the third world, even a case of scurvy, stuff like that. I mean, that he was dealing with at first and then a, a horrible multi-drug resistant tuberculosis epidemic and then AIDS and so on. He was busy, but he was, but but think about this. You get to do that work among the people who need you most, the, using your skills, developing them. And, you, and they're tremendously, tremendously grateful for it. It sounds like a really good job to me compared mm -hmm. to the other ones I can think of, I, you don't have to be a saint to want to do something like that. It turns out that it's, um, I think, very, very satisfying. It's also very uh, difficult because you keep losing your patients prematurely. What makes for a character who, a central character who you think is compelling enough to tell the complicated stories that you want to tell? When do you know you've found it? and and 
because anybody who's the subject of the book often comes across in uh, larger than life terms, I, I'm wondering if you think that they are heroes in some way of some greater calling, but take us into your process. I don't quite understand the larger than life thing. I mean, I'm just trying to draw them as I see them, but yeah, maybe so. Just the fact that they're being singled out makes them that, I guess. I, I I don't know. It's impossible to answer. You know that what the, what does Keats say? The holiness of the heart's affections. I I I just found these people interesting. I found what they were doing interesting. Almost all of them, and and there was always some. I mean, just to run through a few of them. There was this. There was a a, a cop whom I met because I was speeding, and my wife met him the same day for the same reason, and he didn't give her a ticket. And when I realized that, you know, I remember I, when I, I met him and I, a little bit later and I asked him why. And it turned out he didn't like to give women tickets because he hated to see women cry. And I thought that was interesting. <laughs> I, I used him as a vehicle. He was my vehicle to, to write about Northampton, about the, 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 the biggest town near where I live, um, which interested me. Uh, another bunch of others. There was a there were a bunch of computer engineers right at the beginning who were building a new computer pretty much against their company's wishes. And, and I thought, my, my love, my wonderful editor, Dick Todd, who died uh, a few years ago, in the middle of writing my writing Rough Sleepers, uh, very considerate of him. Um, I, he, he, uh, he sent me to this, into that computer story. And I, I can remember thinking, this is gonna be so boring. But I, but I found myself among these engineers who were working you know, doggedly and with enormous fervor, and one, and one of them took me aside, and he started telling me about the, the origins of this machine, this effort. And he, he was using all this martial lingo, like they're, they're, they called them the wars, and there were people who shot from the hip, and there were there was blood on the floor. And you know, he's just talking about the, creating these immobile boxes, you know, metal and plastic boxes. And I thought that's this is interesting. I I don't know. I it's I like the. Um, it's hard to, hard for me to explain it you know there are, there are i have started projects and and abandoned them uh, not usually because i didn't like the person uh or didn't find what it was doing interesting but for there's you know one reason or, or another um but i and i've sometimes written about a large fairly large group of people as i did in that book the soul of a new machine or my book house i wrote about a whole team of a whole team of carpenters but but also about the homeowners and the architect was involved. I like I like to call that a menage a trois, without sexual connotations. It Did, was, have you have you ever had a central character who you really grew to dislike? No, I, I, maybe long, long. Yeah, no, not no, no. I, I I think what no, I really haven't. Um, no, I have not. I they were all. Kind of wonderful in their ways. I mean, most most people are if you just give them a chance and listen to them. I I mean, I know there are some real stinkers out there. Uh, obviously, I guess I really don't want to spend two or three years with one of them. Which um, leads me to ask: How does your presence change a story? Well, I was trying to tell you about that earlier. I think the just the fact that I spend so much time with people makes it, it seems to me, some, gives me some reassurance that I'm not just 
nobody, people aren't acting for my benefit. People, I'm sure people do, but you know, the, the smart ass answer to that is, I don't know, because I wasn't there when I wasn't there. But, <laughs> but I, 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 I don't think it does too much. You know, certainly with Jim O'Connell, um, he just, uh, he, I think he's the way he was with me, with everyone, pretty much. He, he's, he as his, as his one, has his wonderful assistant, brilliant woman who, who once said to me, he's so smart and he hides it so well. I mean, this is a guy who went to know, he grew up in the working class in, 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 in Newport, Rhode Island. And, uh, you know, he went to Notre Dame, got one B in four years, a salutatorian in his class. And, and, uh, you know, he went to, he went to university, he went to University of Cambridge in England, studied philosophy there, got a degree. Uh, Hannah Arendt chose him as one of her research assistants on the basis of stuff he'd written. He, in spite of the fact that he told me I didn't have, I don't think I had a mind for philosophy. You know, and it took him a while to, he just was an enormously talented guy, but, but he also has this great, and I'd say pretty deep humility which is not, you know, an unmixed blessing. Um, his, his, as, for instance, his assistant was, has said to me, um, you know, just to explain their job isn't completely simple, said, he says yes to everything. I am the one who has to say no. And it, it runs that way. You know, you never quite know if, 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 if something really is acceptable to Jim. Uh, if it's unacceptable and he says so, then you really know it's unacceptable. But I, I remember one of the one one guy who I think really liked Jim. I certainly liked this guy. Was retiring and he said, "I was leaving the the state team." And he said to me, "I never knew where I stood with that guy because he's so effing nice." <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask about your own circuitous path to uh, journalism and writing. You were a political science major uh, at Harvard. Then did a stint in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. uh, how did that prepare you or lead you to be a writer? Nothing about that necessarily says author and journalist on it. I grew up, my, my mom was a high school English teacher. And uh, she, I don't know, I, I, I'm not quite sure how that works. You know, she read to me a lot when I was a kid, along with I read to my brothers too. Um, I, I, I was, for some reason, at some point, I really just liked the idea of writing stories. And there was, there was a time at Harvard. I, you've probably read this somewhere. I, I, I'm just plagiarizing, plagiarizing myself anymore, you know. Uh, but I was there, and I, I was gonna save the world from communism. Uh, this was the 1960s when I was becoming a political scientist. And, and at Harvard, they called government, which was really pretty apt description because most of the government had come from Harvard. This is JFK. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, I I decided to take a creative writing course, I guess, because I just thought it'd be fun. And uh, I just wrote stuff out of my head, not without any particular ego or or, or even great ambition. And, but the, and probably for that reason, because it wasn't terribly self-conscious, the teacher seemed to like some, and, and, the, and the, as I've said before, the most important thing was that so did some of the young women in the class. And it seemed to me like a really, and writing, you know, this was still the Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Faulkner, the idea of public intellectuals and writers being somehow important. Um, then it seemed like a romantic thing to be, 
a writer. And I, I think my first strong impulse to be a writer, really strong one, was that it seemed like a good way to meet and impress girls. It, it didn't always work on that well. But, um, and as for Vietnam, I just blundered into, into that. I, um, I'm not sure it had anything to do with Hemingway, although it could have, I suppose. I, uh, I wrote a little book about it um, called My Detachment. I, 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 had, I was in dubious command of eight men in, uh, we were attached to an infantry. So you were an officer? I was a junior officer, yeah. Pretty incompetent, um, I must say. Uh, and, and I, sorry. No, that, that book, My Detachment, which, of course, the double entendre. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, you wrote this book, but you seem to really dislike this book and the one that followed it, uh, Road to Yuba City. Am I correct? No, no, wait. Road to Yuba City is the first book I published. Oh, so My Detachment was not oh, published. Oh, no. That can't, oh, no. I wrote a... I think my detachment's a good book. I really do. Okay, I would good. agree. That's true. My mother hated it, um, <laughs> but but uh, that no, the Road to Your City was a, was a book about a mass murder case that got published. Before that, I had written a novel about a Vietnam novel about experiences I didn't have in Vietnam. It was, and that was never published. That's I mean, the one I was disappointed then, but I'm really glad it wasn't now. And after the Soul of a New Machine. Uh, came out and was and won prizes. The the original publisher of the uh, Road to Yuba City decided to reissue it, and I didn't want him to republish it. I actually bought the rights to that book back, so it couldn't be republished. And I, and, I think I wrote to Google and said, "Don't you dare." <laughs> well, I can tell you. So your intent was to buy the rights back so that it could never be read again, I can tell you one result of that because I, of course, before this interview, uh -oh. <laughs> um, I went on Amazon to see what it would, if I could buy it. Um, and you have succeeded in driving up the price of that book to $250 ah! on Amazon. <laughs> I'm so uh, somewhere a rare book collector is very much uh, in your debt for a book that you hate. I'm really sorry to hear that. I didn't hate it. It's just not very good. And I, yeah, there are things that there are things I really don't like about it. I was still very young. Why but, did you go to the trouble of buying up the rights of a book to keep it out of anyone's hands? I mean, you could just ignore it and tell people not to buy it. Pride. That's that simple. <laughs> really, I, I wasn't proud of it. I, and I, I don't know. I, that's that's a simple, that's really true though. I just didn't like the idea of it being out there huh. anymore. Um, well, let me ask about another one of your books, "Among School Children." Um, you follow a teacher in a fifth grade in Holyoke, Massachusetts, <clears throat> and you were you sat in that class for what most of a year? All of a year. I only missed two days. I was sick one and the other day I played hooky game. <laughs> but they, I was just like a big fifth grader. I had a deal with the teacher, uh, Christine Zajac, that uh, I wouldn't interfere with anything. I wouldn't in, in the classroom unless, well, she was out of the room, unless uh, something truly dangerous was about to happen amongst the kids. Uh, so I never had to do that. Um, 
It was What did you observe in that fifth grade year? And did you succeed in just being a big fifth grader? Or I think, the- I think mostly I succeeded in that. I spent a fair amount of time with her elsewhere too. Actually, once to Puerto Rico with where a lot of her students came from, um, which began my love of that place. Um, uh, what did I learn? I, I learned a couple of things in a general sense. I mean, I had started that book with much greater ambitions than I was able to accomplish. That was the one book where I actually went looking for a certain person in a profession. And that's because Dick Todd's wife, my editor's wife, was a teacher and she said, you really should write a book about an elementary school teacher. So I had one, I wanted a woman, had to be a woman and wanted to be in a difficult, you know, a, a, a city that was, had some poverty. And, you know, I, I just wanted it to, to fit some preconceived notion. But once I got in the classroom, you know, it was, it would be very hard to generalize. And, and in fact, that's why most of this, much of the writing about education is pretty dull because it's all institutional, all theoretical, but not all of it. There's some really good stuff that's uh, about lives in classrooms and so on. But that was part of what I learned is a real, it's tremendously complex what's going on in an elementary school classroom. Almost impossible to keep track of. And this wasn't even a one of those giant, overly, overly, overly large classes. I forget, I think maybe 20 students. I can't remember exactly. It was hard to keep track of all of them. Um, and I just found myself taking notes about everything. Uh, one, I remember one, one of the kids coming up to me and saying, is, is that your book? It was a notebook. I, I said, no, I'm writing. I'm writing. It's just one of my notebooks. It's going to eventually be part of my book. And he said, well, what are you writing in? And I said, things that you say to me. <laughs> it was... It was kind of fun. Um, it, a lot of it was fun. Some of it was really sad. Uh, this was a really dedicated teacher who just just didn't give up. Um, and yet, the, it was perfectly clear that this was not. And she was giving these kids a lot of these kids what they really most most needed, as she once put it herself, which is a stable adult. But. Um, I got the sense that schools were being asked to do a great deal more than they probably can, or at least that they have the resources to do in a way of, you know, uh, well, they can feed children who aren't being fed. They, I guess I, I got a, a glimpse of some of the real problems of public education in a lot of America. And I, you know, think that I, my impression is that those, many of those are still there and, that, and it's not unrelated to homelessness. Mm. And, and at all, I mean, I think of Jim's patients, male patients, I think a full twenty-five percent of the rough sleepers, I mean, are can neither read nor write. So, uh, you know, um, there were deli- you know, fifth graders are just lovely, lovely human beings by and large. Have side. you stayed in touch with any of the kids? This that book came out in nineteen eighty-nine, I believe. I did for a while but then really lost touch. Um, And I lost touch with the teacher eventually. I think she's moved away. That happens. Um, I, you know, I certainly have, I think of her father, I'd love to see her, you know, or the kids, you know, you almost, a fifth grader as an adult is a very hard, there's a lot in between. How would I, it, it could be difficult to navigate. I don't know. 
anyway, I was I, I, that was not a book I was I was ashamed of. So, <laughs> of your books, I mean, the, the Soul of the New Machine, of course, is the one that won the Pulitzer Prize, the National Book Award. Um, so it's garnered the most um, awards. But do you have some favorites among your books that yeah. you know when? Yeah, tell me about that. Well, I I really like my book House, the one about the building of the house. I there's something. Um, I, it's a it's a good story. I think it's got. It, it doesn't doesn't sound like it. I remember when I was uh, first thinking of the idea. Someone said to me, "You mean you write a whole book, a whole book about the building of a house?" <laughs> but it turned out to be so wonderfully dramatic and uh, well, just interesting to me. Uh, it had a lot to do with American history and so on. You know, I like that where. You find yourself at these intersections where you're writing about real people and 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 a, what what actually is a much more dramatic story than you might imagine, and yet and and but all around it is you know are these figures like Thomas Jefferson and Henry David Thoreau and so on. Uh, I like that book. I like, you know, I did my best with all of them, but I, I guess if I had, and I and I and I suspect that this last one, well, Sleepers, will be one of my favorites. Hmm. House, house for way back when, and and the mountains beyond mountains. Um, it, I think I, I wrote that book, you know, when I was at the it, the fullest command of what skills I have as a writer. I just, um, I, I think I did it really well, and I have maybe it's because I have so much outside af uh, affirmation from it, because it's, you know, it's it's. Um, it was adopted. To, it was, you know, they, they used to have this freshman year experience, and a, they they inflict a book on uh, students in their first year at a college when they go to college or a university. Well, it isn't so common anymore, I'm told. And but that it, and house became that book. No, mountains Rough, beyond mountains. Oh, mountains, mountains beyond, beyond mountains. mountains is something like 150 colleges and universities. I went to almost 100 of them over 10 years. It was very interesting, <laughs> but hmm. and. Um, tiring too but I, I enjoyed it i don't know you know and and i have repeatedly again and again run into people who say you know i became a doctor because you look no i'm not sure that's always a good thing but or a or a, or a physician's assistant or a, a nurse i mean I, I that's had to happen to me now a couple hundred times uh, so you know, and it had a very huge, very large effect on the fortunes of Paul Farmer and his cause. I think, particularly for Partners in Health, hmm. um, and it, the publisher is pretty happy. I mean, I, I don't know how many, but it still sells pretty uh, handily, I guess. It's over you are considered really a, a master or one of the leading practitioners of literary journalism. Um, I wonder if you could just say a bit about this, your craft, um, what you think you're, you know, people give this style of writing, long form narrative journalism, what have you, uh, mm -hmm. many names. What do you think of as your craft, your specialty? Well, I, I think I'm a storyteller. And, you know, more than I am a journalist, I, I try to get the stories that I tell just happen to be accurate and I really do strive for factual accuracy. I make mistakes, but I never make them on purpose. There are some people who do. Um, 
and have elaborate justifications for that. That's fine. But I, for me, it's the storytelling, the engine of every good story is human character, I think. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's a little like writing novels, something I imagined that I was gonna do uh, when I was younger. Uh, wouldn't wouldn't have the slightest idea how to do it now, except that you know I think that the techniques of storytelling don't don't belong exclusively to fiction. They never did belong exclusively to fiction, um, and, and and I. So, the the real thing is that you can't you can't make things up. <laughs> you can certainly invent form and um, and the sentences are yours, and there's always a certain amount of inventiveness involved there, right? Um, I'm a sort of of the Orwell school, you know, to, to hope to make the writing not in itself um, the, the the point, you know, to have it be like a pane of glass. Um, but you know, should it be the writing itself should be interesting, but it doesn't have to be flashy. I think I don't know. I believe in immersion in the in the story that I've that I've discovered. There's some great delight in 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 spending a bunch of years with someone like Paul Farmer or or Jim O'Connell and coming back and finally finding a way to make sense of it all, of this huge chaos, you know, in your mind, that that it can, really can be delightful. Uh, I mean, the, the pleasure wears off, I guess. I I don't know. I'm not sure I can answer these. This is a tough question. Well. I, mean, I don't think of myself as a journalist. I, I I think I stopped thinking of myself as a journalist around the time of the Iraq War. I didn't want to be associated with it. What, why did the Iraq War change? Because there were so many lies told and so much bad reporting. You know, I, I it, it starts to taint the term. And then you have Fox News and you know, there's all kinds of stuff now that makes it. I mean, I think it's a wonderful a wonderful profession, journalism. Uh, I, I believe in it utterly. I, I <clears throat> but it, I want to see it practiced better. And that's anyway. <clears throat> it's not quite what I'm up to. I'm not looking for scoops. I'm not looking for <clears throat> to get a story out first. I'm not necessarily looking for things that are preoccupying the nation. I, I happen to hit. I've hit on one here with homelessness, and I, and I just happened to with the computer, you know. But I didn't go. It's that I, you know, and I'm not a bang, an editor um, who needs a story tomorrow. I have the enormous luxury of time. So it, it seems just very different to me. But I'm not, I, but I don't care what you call it, really. I, I never quite understood any of these terms. Creative what? nonfiction always it, bothered me a little. <laughs> what's that? Creative nonfiction always bothered me a little as a term because it suggests that you're making it up, I suppose, to some people. What is your advice to people who want to tell stories in the way that you do? I don't know how, I think it's pretty hard now, much harder. It always seemed hard to me, to be honest. I, I had about 10 lean, very lean years after uh, coming back from Vietnam and um, was it 10? It was more than 10, it was about 12. Um, but the way I, you know, there was a kind of path. Then I, 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 I went to the Iowa Writers Workshop, which was largely wonderful because of the other writers who were there. It was, it was a, they were a really fast company. Um, and I also met a guy named Dan Wakefield, who was a 
a turned novelist. He was a wonderful journalist turned novelist. Long form journalist, I guess you would have said. And Dan put me in touch with the Atlantic. So I I was able eventually, you know, over time to start writing for the Atlantic, but I, you know, just on, as a freelancer for years and years. And that's how I met Richard Todd, um, which was the probably the most important thing that happened to me as a writer. He, he, he taught me how to write. You're a longtime editor. Yeah, 47 years. We wrote a book together called Good Prose, um, which I think is good. <laughs> mm -hmm. he, we wrote it together. Some of it's his. He's, he was a very funny and good writer, I think. Have I, I've lost the track here. Well, I was asking you about your advice to a young uh, author see, or journalist or today uh, who wants to pursue narrative journalism. I'm not sure that those avenues are is, is open or that those same avenues exist today. I haven't I haven't kept up with that sort of thing. I, I you know the whole online world didn't exist when I started. I mean, we didn't have computers when I started. They came along and word processing came along sort of in the middle of it. I, I remember I, in the middle of Among School Children, but I remember the first draft of that was a thousand handwritten pages. Um, first of many drafts. At some point, I actually started using a computer. So uh, now there are these other outlets, I guess. I mean, there are there are media online that you can publish with. I don't think you get paid very well. Not to say that I got paid very well freelancing for the Atlantic. Um, not well enough, really, to live on. My wife hadn't didn't have some income. I, I we'd have, you know, we wouldn't have starved to death, but we'd have been on food stamps. I mean, it was, um, it, it, it was it's not easy. This is, you know, uh, it's probably not easy now. I think you have to really want to do it for it to make to make any sense. If you're a good enough writer to even consider it, you ought to realize that there are many other things you can do in the world that that uh, that would get you a decent income. But if you really want to do this, then I bet there are ways. And they're not probably all that dissimilar. You have to find some friends, maybe an agent, someone to get you in the door of the places that you want to write for. And uh, and you have to make yourself useful to those, <clears throat> those places, particularly if it's a magazine. I, you know, and then you hope to get lucky. I have an awful lot of re writer friends who are really good writers who have never been able to make a living at it. <clears throat> you know, they have to teach. That doesn't mean they're not really good writers. I got lucky, I got really lucky. <clears throat> and I think anyone who can write for a living in this country and doesn't admit to being lucky is deluded at best. <laughs> well, it's our good luck that you were you got lucky and that we've been the beneficiary of all your wonderful prose all these years. So Tracy Kidder, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you. It's, well, this was a lot of fun. I hope I didn't <laughs> talk too much. <laughs> Not at all. 